0: Would you turn, please, to First Timothy, Peter's, uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy, First Timothy chapter two, and we're going to read at verse one. First Timothy chapter two, and verse one. First <clears throat> Timothy chapter two. And verse 1, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved, who desires to have all, and please do not fall victim to Uh, PC, correctness. The word here for men is the word for persons, for mankind. It is a generic term. God desires all to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that is a remarkable statement because the fundamental error of paganism is that there are many gods. That first statement shows us that that is wrong. There is one God. The fundamental error of Christendom is that there are many mediators, many ways to that God. The second statement refutes that. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. There's a wonderful thread that's running through the verses that we read, and you may perhaps have noticed it. it is the repetition of the word all and the concept of uh, an inclusive message, an, an all-inclusive message, if you will. Because at the beginning of the chapter, Paul calls on believers to pray for all who are in authority, for all people. And then says, because God desires all people to be saved. And then he tells us that Christ Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. And then he tells us that he himself is a preacher. And when he uses the word Gentiles, it's the word for nations. It's an idea of going beyond the Jewish nation of which he was a part and preaching to the nations of the world. So what we're looking at tonight is a desire for all, and a ransom for all and a message for all and a longing for all, all compacted into these wonderful verses in First Timothy chapter two. If you could speak to God tonight, if you could ask God what He wants for you, I know what the answer would be, because I just read it to you from His word. God desires all to be saved. No preacher, no gospel evangelist, no Christian will ever meet someone that God doesn't want to have in heaven. God desires all to be saved. Back in 2008, there was a 78-year-old man named Angel Torres who was walking on a street in Hartford, Connecticut, crossed the street and was hit by a car. He spun over the car and the driver who hit him just kept going. Angel Torres landed on the street and lay there, inert, motionless. Number of cars passed him by. Number of pedestrians looked and walked on by. One man on a scooter came up, actually circled around him. Maybe he was checking if he had a wallet and then took off. And there he lay. One person in a car drove up Rolled down his window, stopped, looked for a few seconds, and then drove on. And Angel Torres just lay there. The police chief of Hartford was lamenting the attitude of people that no one did anything, that that we live in such a callous society, that the man would just lie there bleeding and and dying and nobody coming to his aid. Do you know that in Sunday school, when I was a boy, we used to sing a, a, a song that had lines in it like this God did not pass me by oh wondrous love got that God did not pass me by oh wondrous love do you realize that God could have passed us all by he was under no obligation to provide salvation why did he do it because God desires all to be saved In other words, the reason that you can be saved tonight is not found in your heart. It's found in God's. The reason why he provided salvation is not found in you, but in him. He desires all to be saved. He worked to that end. He wants everyone to be saved, and he gave his son to make that possible. Luke chapter 15 is the portrait of God painted by his son, the Lord Jesus. And in that marvelous portrait, he presents God as being in a hurry to save sinners, as being eager to reach men and women with the gospel and to bring them into the enjoyment of forgiveness. And he pictures the father running down the road to welcome home his returning prodigal son because the Lord Jesus wanted us to know that the thing that gives God joy, the thing that gives heaven joy, the thing that gives the people in heaven joy, the thing that even makes angels in heaven rejoice, is when a sinner trusts Christ and is saved. God wants you to be saved. Now, I noticed not all that long ago a remarkable thing, that in a number of back-to-back chapters, God underscored this truth for us. For instance, in Luke chapter 17, the Lord Jesus saves not only a man who was a Samaritan, but a man who was a Samaritan leper. Not only had he no place in Jewish society, he would have no place in society, period. Because he was dying with a loathsome disease that generally involved, if not invariably involved, quarantine. But the Lord Jesus reached that man. Now the same Savior that reached a a Samaritan leper in Luke chapter 17 was willing to save a wealthy young ruler, a Jew, in chapter 18. Because to God, Things like rank and station mean nothing. And so God brings them together in back-to-back chapters. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, the Lord Jesus saves a penniless beggar, a blind man named Bartimaeus. And in Luke chapter 19, he saves the wealthy tax gatherer, Zacchaeus, because things like wealth and power mean nothing to God. In Acts chapter 9, God saves a Jewish rabbi. He meets the Lord Jesus and Saul of Tarsus is saved. But in Acts chapter 8, that same gospel reaches an African treasurer from Ethiopia because things like origin and nationality and ethnicity mean nothing to God. John chapter 3, with such wonderful skill, the Lord Jesus brings a Jewish rabbi named Nicodemus to an understanding that he needed a new birth. And yet in the very next chapter, that same Savior reaches a Samaritan woman because things like the presence of religion or the lack of it or the presence of morality or the lack of it make no difference to God. He's ready to save you tonight if you're a guilty sinner. He wants you to be in heaven no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. How do I know that? Because the Bible says God desires all to be saved. So by the time I am done... In this opening part of the meeting, I have conveyed nothing else to you. I hope that when you leave the tent after hearing Mr. Zudema preach the gospel, you will understand that God wants you to be saved. God wants you in heaven. God wants you to trust his beloved son. God desires all to be saved. Now, to make that possible, Christ gave himself a ransom for all. He went to Calvary and died such a death and accomplished such a work that he is the Redeemer. In order to be the Redeemer, as we were singing in Philip Bliss's hymn, he had to pay the ransom. Now, when we think of ransom, we generally think of something like this, that bad people capture somebody and then demand that the relatives of that captured person pay them a ransom, and they will set that person free. But that is not how the Bible uses the word. The way the Bible uses the word is this, that God and his son agreed on this, that it would be Christ, the son of God, who would die at Calvary, that he would place into the hand of God the value of his death, The infinite, inexhaustible, immeasurable, boundless value of his death that would enable God, receiving that ransom, would enable God to deliver you from Satan and from sin and to do it in a righteous way. All because he gave himself a ransom for all. Do you notice who he is? Do you notice what we read? The man, Christ Jesus, that God who cannot die, became a man so that he could die. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but there's a wonderful word in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word, and if I'm pronouncing it correct, it is the word goel. And it is generally spoken about when people tried to speak about it as the kinsman redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. That in the Old Testament under Jewish law, someone who was going to to Bring someone into blessing or uh, save the inheritance of someone who had died, and perhaps his widow would be left destitute. He would have to be a relative, a kinsman, and he'd have to be willing to pay the price, a redeemer. And so, that hyphenated word, kinsman redeemer, just please bring that to what we're reading about tonight. And you will understand why the Bible talks about the miracle. The miracle of the incarnation and virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. The deity and humanity in one person. See, no new person came into existence when Jesus was born. No new person came into existence. But the Lord Jesus now was a man. And he would be a man forever from his conception. Could you please tell me why he would be willing to do that? Why would he be willing to do that? Here's how the Bible describes him in the Old Testament. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, Solomon said, how much less this house that I have built. Imagine an an infinite being who he says fills heaven and earth, the God of eternity, becoming a baby, linking himself with us. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, how would you like to become a slug Or a crab. How would you like to stop being a human being or to link your humanity with with being an insect? You say, how far beneath me that would be. Listen, the distance between the most intelligent person in the tent tonight and an insect is infinitely less than the distance between him and us. And yet he became a man in order to die for you. The man, Christ Jesus. As our brother Zudema reminded us so properly the other night, the Bible presents to us the majesty of his sinless nature, his impeccable life. He is the only one who never sinned. The only one who never sinned. That is why he has given these two titles, that he is the last Adam and he is the second man. I know those sounds like the strange descriptions, but I have sometimes thought of it like this. I used to work for Philadelphia Electric about a century ago. And this was before personal computers uh, and mainframe computers. And so the way that the records were handled were with punch cards, IBM machines and punch cards. So there would be huge trays of cards that would be fed into the machines. And the way that you programmed the machines was on a board that would snap into the machine. And you programmed the board By moving wires. I know this all sounds antiquated and some of you are checking your watches to see whether you have email just now, but understand that this is going back now into the the late 60s and 70s. And and so you could program the board. You could say, I want to run these 10,000 cards and I want this machine to stop when it hits the first card that is punched differently from the others. If they're all punched October, I want the machine to stop when it gets to a November card. And so out of the thousands of cards that it's shuffling through, they're all the same. They're all punched the same. And then there's the one that's different and it stops. Now, if you started with the first man, Adam, and you shuffled through all of humanity, we were all punched the same way. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us comes into the world with a sinful nature, a propensity toward selfishness that we must fight. And that we realize is in our hearts if we are honest. Every one of us is the same. None of us is different. And then there was a second man. Different from all other men. Because he was absolutely sinless. And you know that first man, Adam? He was the head of a race of men and women. I used to belong to his race. Adam's race. And he dragged his whole family, his whole race, he dragged it into ruin. But the moment that a person trusts the Lord Jesus, then that person is linked with the last Adam. And he's called that because there will never be another race. There will never be another racial head. There will never be another person who will be the redeemer. So you tonight are either linked with Adam in his sins or with Christ in his work on the cross. And so the miracle of the fact that he alone, he alone was without sin. Do you know the mighty victory of his cross work? was implied in the Old Testament when God said these five words. I have found a ransom. I have found a ransom. God could say that because he knew what was coming at Calvary. That the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, would give himself a ransom for all. That he would make the payment that would enable God to deliver sinners from going down to the pit, from being lost forever. And so he gave himself a ransom for all. And that redeemer who became a man has become the mediator. The one way to God. There are no other ways to God. And you and I don't have any option to open up another way or create another way. We've been very, very ingenious in creating our gods. And we have been exceedingly Ingenious in creating our mediators. But just as there is only one true God. There is only one mediator between that God and you. And that is the Lord Jesus. I remember. I remember someone saying that. um, She thought that the mother of the Lord Jesus, Mary, she was a woman. And, and, And so this woman was saying, I just feel that Mary understands me as a woman. And that I can speak to her and I can ask her to speak to her son and that he will listen to her because he loves her and 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 she loves me. Number one, nobody loves you more than the Lord Jesus. Number two, nobody not Paul, not Peter, not James, not John, not Mary, not great believers who have lived in a past day, not wonderful Christians who are alive today. Nobody can take up your case with God except the one mediator between God and men, himself a man, Christ Jesus. Do you know why that is? He's the only one acceptable to God. This is it's not a matter of how I feel. It's not really a question of, do you feel comfortable with your religion? The question is, what about God? What does God say I need? And, and what will satisfy God? And the one person who is acceptable to God is his beloved son. The resurrection and ascension of Christ is God's way. They are God's way of conveying to you that this is the one way to him. Sometimes people say, there's just so many religions in the world, and how would I ever know what is right? And they wring their hands in despair. How will I ever come to an understanding of how to reach God, how to get to heaven? What's the right religion? Would it help you any? Would it simplify the matter? If we just took a step back and realized that in all of history, there's only one tomb that was emptied by a man who raised himself from the dead. Just one. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, Christ, Christ, because he is the one mediator between God and mankind. He is acceptable to God. I'm glad to tell you that he is capable of resolving the great problem of your sin. His ability to save is coupled with his might to save because he is called in the Bible mighty to save, able to save to the uttermost. There is no emergency. There is no extremity that can thwart his power. He's able to save you tonight no matter who you are. And not only is he acceptable to God, not only is he capable of saving you, but he's willing to do that. Because the Bible says not only is he mighty to save, but that he is ready to save, willing to save. So if I could just clarify the issues tonight, as you are so kindly listening to me, thank you so much for your attention, because there's no reason why you should listen to me, so thank you very much. The real issue in the tent tonight is this. There's a Savior who wants to save you. There's a God who wants you to be saved. That Savior, that mediator is standing in heaven just now. If you appeal to him, he could make you right with God. He can handle the problem of your sins. Do you know why? Because he's the only person who died on a cross, bearing the sins of guilty men and women, and he is able to save to the very end all those who come to God by him. So I don't know how you're hoping to come to God, but if you come to God by him, you will be saved, and you will be in heaven with him forever. Do you notice that Paul wants that message? He understands that that message should be proclaimed to the world. So he speaks about his global audience. And, and I think his words that he is a, a herald. That's the idea. A herald. We're not so accustomed to that. If we were in conversation talking together, we would be speaking in normal tones of voice, but a herald, a herald. A herald is announcing broadly, generously, loudly. He wants his voice to reach as many people as possible. And that's the word Paul uses here, that he is heralding the gospel to the nations. And of course, isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus said? When he said in Mark chapter 16 to his people, to the disciples, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he was simply saying he wants every Christian to tell it and he wants every, Christ, every creature to hear it. He wants you to hear this message tonight. He wants you to hear this gospel news tonight. That you can have salvation. This is a glorious announcement. That all the work that was needed to save you from your sins. That all the payment that was required to deliver you from hell was all done at Calvary. God's not asking you to bring your five cents. He's not directing you to some religion that you must join. And if you just are faithful enough and you obey enough and you suffer enough or you sacrifice enough, that then all will be well. He is telling you Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he rose again. The third day, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be saved. That's the message for a whole world that Christ died so that we could be saved and everyone who trusts him will be. So as I sit down, would you just notice that there's a longing for all in the hearts of Christians and they're they're expressing that longing by praying for others. So we pray for you because of what we know about God. You know what I know about God? I know that God is merciful. I know that God is gracious and I know that God is ready to forgive. That's what the Bible teaches me. That God is merciful. Do you know in a remarkable setting that word was used? In a remarkable scenario. Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam, Those four cities were going to be destroyed because of their heinous and unmentionable sins. And God sent an angel to warn Lot and his family. And Lot and his wife and children, grown children, were so enamored of Sodom and the comfort and the leisure and Sodom society that when they were taken outside the gate and the angel told them, run, escape for your life, don't even look behind you. That they just kind of loitered around the gate, not not sure that they really wanted to go. So what did the angel do? Do you remember what it says? The angel took them by the hand, and then you have this phrase, the Lord being merciful to them the Lord being merciful to them. God did not want them to fall into the judgment that was coming and being merciful to them. He was warning them. And in his mercy to you tonight, God wants to warn you of your sins and turn you to his beloved son. He is gracious. He is willing to save. He is ready to forgive. There is no reluctance on his part. If you came and trusted his son tonight, God is ready to forgive you. So we pray because we know about God. And we pray because of what we know about salvation. It's just the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> There's nothing to match it. Everybody that has it wants other people to have it. I know people get annoyed and angry and they, they, they uh, feel that Christianity is an evangelical belief that calls on you to convert other people. But you must understand, we found the best thing there is in this world. And we want everybody that we know to have it. I've never met a human being that I I didn't want to see saved because I've never met a human being that God doesn't want to have saved. That's why the Bible calls it great. This great salvation. It's great in its source. It, It comes from God. It's great in its subject. It's all about the Lord Jesus. It's great in its effects. It lifts a person out of the misery of sin, shatters habits of guilt and wickedness, sets a person into a new life. It's great in its effects. It's great in its duration. Everything I have, everything I have deteriorates, fails, fades, dies. You don't have anything in your life that's permanent except this. And I, just let me tell you this from personal experience. And I know that what I'm about to say, every person here who's saved would say the same thing. Unlike so many things in this life, in this world, when it comes to salvation, the longer you have it, the better it is. See, the longer you have it, the more you value it and appreciate it. When my father was dying, I, I, had, I had no idea the significance of these words. I was, I was probably by then I was already 30, 29 or 30. But still, still, I didn't understand really the significance of these words. When he said to me on the one day I had with him, before I had to leave for meetings and he died two days later, he said, you know, the older you get, the more you appreciate the blood of Christ. Oh, I nodded my head and thought, yeah, that's, that's fine. But I, I didn't realize the, the depth of what he was saying. But I do now, 30 some years later, because salvation is the kind of thing, the longer you have, the more thankful you are to God that you have it. And in fact, I've noticed that when you come to ask people, my wife's always my wife's always correcting me. I was born in 1950, so I, I, I just do the math, see? So I say 50 from 2018, so I'm 68. But see, I'm not 68 yet. And she'll say to me, you're not, you're not that yet, right? And we always want to hold on to the previous age until the big day comes, and then you're older. But I've noticed when I hear people talk about salvation, they always wish they were older. They always wish they had been saved longer. So when it comes to regular life, people want to be younger. When it comes to salvation... I can't tell you how many people I've heard say something like this. I was saved when I was 20. How I wish I was saved when I was 15. I was saved when I was 18. I wish I'd saved when I was 13. I've heard people say I was saved when I was 12. I wish I was saved when I was 10. Why is it that when it comes to the new life, people wish they'd had it longer? Because it's great. I hope you won't go home without it tonight. Because it's the greatest thing in this world. And we pray for you because we know what eternity is going to be like. Heaven's the one place you don't want to miss. Hell is the one place you don't want to risk going to. So as Mr. Zudima preaches the gospel, I hope you will make sure tonight that you are on the way to heaven through that one mediator traveling to that one God to live forever with him in heaven.
1: Thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight uh, to the meeting. Uh, really appreciate it. And if someone brought you out, uh, I know we don't often say this, but uh, uh, you should be thankful to them. Um, in a world where we've been hearing about, where it seems no one cares about anybody else, if someone brought you to this meeting tonight, um, they care about where your soul is going to be. Uh, and that's a very significant uh, thing to say, that, that, that they would care enough where you're going to spend uh, not only the rest of your days here, but where you're going to be in eternity, that's their concern. And so we too, that's our concern for you tonight as we've already been here. I like to read a couple of verses here in the Bible. If you want to turn them, if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 5, Luke 5. And we're going to read a, a brief account here or a story. Uh, and then I want to speak on just one verse here. Just lift a statement that was said. By the Lord Jesus here. Actually, not said by the Lord Jesus, but said about him by others. And we're going to read it here in Luke 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 5. And uh, the verse I want to read, we'll back up a little bit and just catch. Let's see here. Uh, we'll read. We'll read verse 18. Verse 18 here. Luke 5 and 18. And it says this. And behold... Men brought in, in a bed, a man which was taken with a palsy. It means he was paralyzed. He couldn't move. They brought this guy in on a bed, and they sought means to bring him into this house and to lay him before the Lord Jesus, lay him before him. And when they could not find by way that they might bring him in because of the multitude, there were so many people in the house, they couldn't get in. That's what the story is telling us. It says here, they went on top of the house. They went on the rooftop or on the housetop. And they let him down through the tiling, which with his couch or on his bed into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, he said unto this paralyzed man, he said, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Thy sins are are forgiven thee and the scribes and the Pharisees or the religious the religious guys of the day they began to reason saying who is this who is this which speaketh blasphemies who can forgive sin but god alone who can forgive sins but god alone tonight before me in my message i want to speak about a word that we use all the time the word identity, identity. And I want to use that. And if if you have thinks of times that you have added a word to that, I'm going to speak on those words as well. Tonight. And I, I just want to speak on mistaken identity. I want to speak on identity theft, although you don't have to worry. Um, no one here is looking for your credit card or, you know, uh, as it were, <laughs> seeking to take anything from you. But identity theft I want to talk about identity crisis. You say, we've all heard about, oh, I've had an identity crisis. Maybe you have to be a little older to hear about that one. And I want to, finally, I want to speak about self-identity. But those words in that order, or those phrases. Identity, as you say, mistaken identity. It's a unique mistaken identity. My name is David Zudema. I was at an event two weeks ago. I was actually, a friend of mine invited me to it. It was a bunch of Christian guys who got together, and they said, they had a meeting there, and they said, "Do you want to be on the email list?" To me, I said, "I was like, I had to think about it because you know how you get so much junk mail now." And I said, "Oh, do I really want to be on this?" I said, "Okay, fine." So they go, "Go talk to that guy over there, Dave, over there." See, Dave? I looked over there and I said, "Yeah, I see him." And I go, "Go, go tell him I want to be." I went over to him, and he said, "Hey, nice to meet you." He goes, "Yeah, they tell me to talk to you to get on the email list." He goes, "What's your name?" And I said, "David Zuniga." He goes, "Oh," he goes, "My name's David Zuniga." So you think, what are the chances? He could have been emailing himself, but he was going to email me. You say mistaken identity. I've actually, I used to be on Facebook. I got rid of it. I would I would exhort you to do the same thing too. Does wonders for your health. But when I was on Facebook, I had four different guys message me and said, cool name, man. And their name was David Zudema. Um, so unique enough, in this tent, well, there's only one, but there's two other guys. You say, uh, identity sometimes is so bizarre. In fact, on this day, Um, 214 years ago in Weehawken, New Jersey. I used to live down in Weehawken, New Jersey. There was, it was the last time, and I know it was the only time that a vice president killed someone. We have all these problems these days with our our vice presidents or presidents, whatever. But back then, they killed people. Today, you'd say it's getting a little tamer. But back then, a man named Aaron Burr, he pulled out his gun and he shot and killed Alexander Hamilton. And there down in Weehawken, New Jersey, I used to live right around the corner from it. And I've always been fascinated by the story. But what fascinates me the most is this, is that Hamilton, you think of all the things that he did. If you read the New York Post in the morning. He was, the, he was the man who got that newspaper started. If you like the money that we use and the way our economics work, it's, it was as a result of Hamilton. You say, all these, if you like the play in New York and you've seen it, kudos to you for having that much money. He goes, but, but if you like the, all these things. And yet I do this to kids all the time and I, it's probably a joke that has gotten bad by now. I hold up a $10 bill with Alexander Hamilton on it and I say, if you can tell me what number president he was. The $10 bill is yours. And the kids, they, oh, they, they struggle. And then you can see their eyes squinty, and you can see them looking around for a hint. And then they say to me, 11. Sometimes I've heard 20. He was never president. Some people don't know that. Mistaken identity. You think a lot of things. I've heard someone say he was on Mount Rushmore once. Not there. You think think the whole life, a man who lived such a resounding life, and yet we don't even know who he was. When it comes to the Lord Jesus, if I said to you, describe him, just describe him, tell me a little bit about him, you'd say, well, you know, let me ask you this. If the Lord Jesus walked into the meeting tonight, would you believe what he said? If he walked into the meeting tonight and he said something, would you believe it? I can tell you're not a nodding crowd. So um, you no. Know, everyone sat there, you know, even some of the Christians. Um, and you'd say, well, I don't know, Dave, maybe I would. Tell me this. How would you know it was him? You say, oh, we all know what he looks like. Do we? Do we? You know, I've never found a description in my entire Bible what he looks like. I've never, I've never once do we get it. All we know is that he had a beard. Oh we know, we have no description of him. And you'd say... Oh, yes, if a man who looked like him come in here and said, give me your car and $10, I would do it because he looks like the picture on the church that I go to. Well, that guy would take off. He probably lives down the road in Oakland. You say, no. You say, if, if Jesus Christ, and yet we open up the Bible tonight and we tell you something and we say, Jesus Christ said this, would you believe it? And you say, I don't know. Well, he said it. You say, a man tonight coming in here, you'd say, I don't know if I could believe it or not. I want to look at these things tonight because he is a unique figure, the Lord Jesus Christ. When I use that word unique, it means one of a kind. There was no one else like him. No one else like him. Uh, what, what is so unique about Christ and these men, they say this, who is, yeah, right? who is he? Who is this? Who is he? And they, they didn't know who he was. And tonight, I just wanted to get this over to you, exactly who he is. Because if I said to you tonight, who gets to heaven? I asked a man that once after a tent meeting like this in the back. I said, who goes to heaven? And he said to me, I don't know. So then I asked him this. I said, who goes to hell? But I said, don't, I don't know. I said, you mean to tell me? And he was a religious man. I mean, you can't tell me who goes there. And who goes there? Now, the Bible tells me this. What if I asked you? Who goes there? Who who goes? The Bible tells me in the verses we read tonight, say this. Forgiven people go to heaven. People who are forgiven of their sins. You say, who doesn't get into heaven? People who deserve it there will not be a single person in heaven who deserves to be there. Not a single person. If there are a billion people in heaven, there will be a billion people who did not deserve to be there. And so when we come to this description, who is this that forgives sins? Who is it? I want to look at this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, because this is a unique figure, and I want to look at it tonight in those three things, and just the time that's remaining. Identity theft. Identity theft. Um, She's not here tonight. I don't see her. Or I can tell a story. My, my grandma, um, like other, I guess, people of her age, she's always getting phone calls, right? Um, this is your grandson, and I need $1,000, right? Um, and she only has uh, five grandsons, and I can't say that it would be out of the ordinary for us to call, probably not for a thousand, but at least maybe for ten dollars. So uh, she's got to be, she's got to be, you know, keen on what's going on because that's and and people call up, and so she told me this story, uh, and I thought, man, I, you know, sometimes you don't realize how clever your grandparents are. She said, you know what I said to him? He said, this is your grandson, and I need, I need so much money. And she said, Joey, is that you? And and the guy in the airline goes, yeah, it is. She goes, I don't have a grandson named Joey, and hung up the phone, right? And you said, I said, Grant, wow. I was like amazed. I was like, what a unique way to do that. And when it comes to this identity theft. You say, yeah, Dave, I believe in that. There's people, I bet you Satan wants to steal who I am. And and I bet you that the the, the other people in this world who are evil, they want to steal who I, they want to take my identity. No, 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 my friend, it's the opposite way around. For the past 6,000 years, we have been trying to steal God's identity. It happened in the Garden of Eden, just in that first moment. What did Satan say to that woman? He said, He said, if you do that, you'll be just like God. You'll be just like him. Take his identity. And ever since then, we have been deciding what is right and what is wrong based on me. It's I'm just what was God's job? What was his identity is now mine. I decide. What's the standard to get to heaven? Is it this high? Is it this high? Is it that high? And yet we just determine the standard. No, you got to attend church 50 out of 52 weeks in the year. No, you gotta, you got to pay at least 10 grand every two years to your church. No, you got to make a pilgrimage to that place. We decide the standards. We decide how high it is. We decide what's right or wrong. You know what the worst part is? We, we become our own saviors. We save ourselves. And all along, when it comes to identity theft, we're so worried about who's gonna take my name, who's gonna take my credit card, who's gonna break into my email, who's gonna, who's gonna take over my social media account. We're so consumed with it. And all along, we've been trying to rob the creator of the universe of his identity, of what he has the right to do. We've been trying to do it all along. If I could do that, it's amazing how many atheists you meet, and they all want to be God. They don't believe in the one person they want to be. They want to do it themselves. They, they want to determine their own standards, their own... This is, I'm going to be God in my life. And, and, and you would say, no, Dave, no, that's, that's not the way it is. Well, tell me, my friend. I just want this. We read that verse. Who is this that forgives sins? Are you forgiven? Because the Bible says... God forgives sins, not a man. A church doesn't forgive sins. Prayers don't forgive sins. Confessions don't forgive sins. Money doesn't forgive sins. You add to my list. God forgives sins. Are you forgiven by the God of heaven? You say, how in the world could I be? We're robbing him of his identity. You know, it almost seems like every one of us at one time in our life have wanted to be God. And yet only one God ever wanted to become a man. And God became a man. Jesus of Nazareth. And when it comes to all the the thieving, right, right? All the stealing that could be done. You know, he had the greatest heist known to man when he went to Calvary. And he robbed the world of its sin. He took the sins of the world and he died for them in order to forgive us of our sins. And when it comes to this identity, my friend, if you think that you will determine the standard for heaven, quit being God and recognize that God said this, the standard is perfection. You say, no one's going. Yes, people are going. You say, how in the world? Because a perfect man died at Calvary. We've already been hearing about him. This man, that one man, right? The man, Christ Jesus, who died at Calvary so that you could be forgiven of every single one of your sins. Identity theft. I think of an identity crisis. This identity crisis, you think sometimes uh, this might not be so... I don't know if it's... uh, if it's if it's it's as widely known, I, I'm looking at an audience here. I see some younger people, some older people. Um, if you have parents, they probably already went through an identity crisis. Uh, if you're in your 30s, you're going through one now. And uh, don't don't push it, right? Don't push people's buttons when they when they're just things aren't working out the way they thought, you know, or just uh, who am I? We kept asking that, and we're just frustrated about this crisis moment. And you'd say, when we look at the gospel. This crisis moment of of who I am. The Bible tells me this, that that, that really some of the problem is this. Uh, I was made in God's image. I wasn't made in the image of an ape. I was made in God's image. That this Bible tells me this as far as the identity crisis. The problem is this, that life seems to go well until I look inside. We were hearing about the, the story our brother just told about the man. Uh, They're in Hartford, where everyone seemed to go by and to care less about them. I I, I meet a lot of people, and they always talk about, are you the first person to be on the scene of an accident? And and all of us living around here, I mean, we're all on Route 4, Route 80, uh, 287 is just as bad, right? And you say, sometimes there's a fear about being the first on the scene of accident. There's like an innate fear about having to see anything like that. Sometimes, I, I, you'd have to ask your own, maybe I, I don't want to speak for my audience, but sometimes it's within here, you'd say, you'd say I hope someone else maybe gets there before me because I really don't want to have to stop. I got somewhere to go. I got something to do. You know, I just, uh, I hope, yeah, as you're driving down, you're glad that someone else pulled over and is, is taking care of someone who's just been in something, uh, something awful or something tragic of an accident. You say, I'm, I'm glad because I, I had things to do today. You know, sometimes we just look at our own selves. Everything seems so wonderful. And then as you turn inward, uh, the Apostle Paul said, he goes, there, in me, there's no good thing. In me, there is nothing, nothing good. When it comes to the lust and to the greed, to the pride, to the anger, all those things that, that are in me. That it seemed to just, as it were, when I reflect on them, I get an identity problem because I'm really wondering. I wonder if other people know about that. Sometimes we talk about if, if you just plastered on the wall the things that run through my head. Think about the things that run through your head when, when, when you're going through your day. And you said, if everyone else knew about them, the shame that you would have. And you'd say, I'm glad no one else knows about the identity in here. And we're so consumed with the identity out here we we we're, we're so taken up with it we actually say i'm just a body with a soul and you're not you're a soul that has a body and that soul will go on forever and i don't have to i don't even have to defend my position i don't have to make my point all you have to do is be part of any type of a social media group and you know right away people are consumed with what is on the outside and at a certain point very little concern for what is in here very little concern and you can see that. You ever see people online when they have an argument? You ever see them? The, 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 the way they address individuals they've never met, like cursing or swearing? You say, you say, just because they're separated from you. yeah, there's such a nice, a uh, such a nice picture, profile picture, and then you see the, the 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 verbal vitriol that that just goes back and forth, and you'd say, I can't believe this. I often thought, uh sometimes I'm really bashing social media here tonight. Makes me feel grand. <laughs> but uh, I've often thought with that identity crisis, you'd say, I want to be forgiven by the God of heaven. You'd say, but I wonder if he would be able sometimes just to locate me. How would he locate and save my soul? Forgive me amidst everyone else. I've often thought too, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, if, if we were to search for you, if we were trying to locate you, I've met people that I've only been friends with online and you meet them in person and you have to be reintroduced because they look nothing like the picture, nothing like it. I was reading the other week. It was actually many weeks ago. I was reminded of this, that there were people who died September 11th in the twin towers and there is not a picture of them that exists. No picture. All they have is a name. They have no image on this earth. If you were looking for them tonight, you couldn't do it visually. You would have to just have a name. And you say, that's amazing that there are people in this world who have no image, no picture, nothing to identify them by. How would God identify you tonight? If God's looking for your identity, if he's looking for you and you can't give a driver's license number, you can't give a social security number, if you can't give him a street address, how would he find you? And people, they come to terms, they want to describe themselves and they would love God to take notice of them and they describe themselves in in ways of of righteousness and and good things and, and relationships that they had with people and yet the Bible says... You read it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How else would I describe myself if I wanted to be saved? How else would I describe myself if I wanted to be forgiven? You'd say, I would describe myself in such a way, you'd say, they never find me. If the police come tonight and I was missing and they said, what did he look like? You'd say, You'd say, no, uh, what color hair did he have? You'd say, oh, the description would have to be so apt. You'd get down to the very details. You'd tell him the design of my tie. Maybe you'd be able to tell him the color of my shoes. You'd say, no, I know what kind of watch he was wearing. You'd say, I'd want to be so distinct in order for him to be found. And the Bible says, identity tonight, you want to be forgiven? It's only... We were reminded the other night of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. How does the words go? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Maybe you've been describing your identity wrong all these years. And so maybe God doesn't even know who he's looking for. There was a time in my life where I realized just who I was, that in me was no good thing. And this identity crisis of of, of all that I was, was resolved when I realized exactly the way God saw me. Not the way I looked on myself, but the way God saw me. Finally, just looking at this, we've talked about identity theft and identity crisis. The last one, self-identity. Really, the word just means... uh, the, the, the way that, that we look forward in life, the recognition, the potential, everything that's going to make me, me. And sometimes we look at it that this life, this frame can just be filled with things. And throughout the course of life, you fill it with something else. You you add this degree and, and you said you went to this high school. You belong to this fraternity. You worked at this place. These were your parents and you fill this identity. And, and it's a self-identity. It it distinguishes you from someone else. Uh, in my room where I live, on top of my armoire there, I have this little wooden box. It, it used to belong to a woman that is known to many people here. Her name was Jeanette Sona. And she gave me this little wooden box about, it's, it's very, it's like at that high, it's about that wide. And she gave it to me. And the story was behind it was that inside that box was a very valuable firearm. As a, I don't want to state that because you might think I have a firearm. I don't. Um, you listen to the story. It was a, a German Luger from from World War. I think it was World War one or two, but it was of such. I looked it up on, on eBay and it was it was worth They They could have probably moved when she moved and probably purchased a whole nother car. But the problem was, is that her husband, uh, who had Alzheimer's, hid the gun. They never found it, never found it. And she gave me the box. And it's amazing. The box, you open it up, red felt, and the perfect outline in that red felt box of what is unmistakable for a handheld firearm. Unmistakable. You say, you say I could bring the youngest kid into the, the, the most anti-NRA person into the tent, open that box, boom, right away, they would know what belonged in that box. Right away, without doubt, no one would even hesitate. It looks like nothing else. It is unmistakable what belongs in that box, and yet it's missing. You say, what is it worth to keep the box? Well, the box reminds me of her. The box reminds me of the story. It reminds me of her husband, too. uh, And so I keep it there. And it also reminds me of this great fact of life, that in each side of us and every one of us is an outline of something that is unmistakable. And can only be filled by one person, Jesus Christ. And so if I take that box and I I, I jam my watch into it, don't fit. If, if, I, if I take, uh, as it were, some of my pens and put them in there, it, 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 it wasn't made for that. It doesn't belong there. And I, I'm never going to find the thing that belongs there. It's gone. It's long gone. And some people go through life with this outline, and they say, you're searching, you're searching, you gotta be looking for that one thing that's gonna fill this vacuum inside, and you search for it in all different ways, all different categories, all different parts of life, and some people find it, and unfortunately, some people don't. You could be forgiven tonight, and you could find the man, Christ Jesus. And you say, how hard would I have to look? Not hard at all, because he's searching for you. This is the man. This is the person. They say, who is it? Who is it? This identity. Who is this that forgives sins? There's only one man that forgives sins. And that one man came into this world, and it is very unique. And he said this in John chapter 8. You go home and read it when he had to give his own identity, he said this, when you have lifted me up on that cross, you will know who I am. And only then will you know who I am. Imagine that. Imagine knowing who he is, seeing him on a cross. When we see someone in a coffin, no, no, there's no more knowing them. That's the end of them. When you see someone incarcerated, you say, that's it. It's done. No more knowing them when they put Christ on that Roman cross. We knew him as the savior of sinners like me. And at that cross, I find out exactly who I am too. If I had any wondering, if I was wondering at all about who I was, I find out exactly who I am. At that cross, I'm the sinner that Christ came to save. And so when it comes to this, who is this? Don't be mistaken about who Christ is. Don't be mistaken about who he is. He is the savior of sinners. And if anybody asks you, sometimes we often say, you could be given the opportunity. I've been given the opportunity once in life to sit next to someone who was dying down at the VA hospital there in Lyons, New Jersey. And they would say to you, what does it take to get to heaven? What gets me there? My friend, what would you say to him? Who gets there? What's the identity look like of people who are on the streets that are paved with gold? What does their identity look like? They're all forgiven and they all look like Christ because Christ took their place. Christ took their place at Calvary. The Bible says the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God no longer sees my sin because his son died for my sins. I could believe that and be forgiven of every single one of my sins. I could be forgiven and I could know this. I could know that I have a home in heaven. Guaranteed, why? Because better than if anybody man come in here tonight and said anything, God's word says it. The Bible says it. Bible says, who is this? That forgives sins, Jesus Christ, because he was the only one who died for sins at Calvary and died so that you could be forgiven tonight of all the wrongs, all the guilt, all the sins that a life could ever commit can be forgiven because one perfect life was crucified there at Calvary. We pray that you might be saved tonight.